0: Good morning, if you would please take out your copy of the scriptures and open to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5. So it was back in November of last year that we started our study of the Gospel of Luke, uh, slowly making our way through the first four chapters, and, and the plan was that after we finished in chapter 4, we would take a little break to do a topical series on the church with well, that series now complete, uh, with uh, the truths from the word about God's church, hopefully still in our hearts, uh, we turn our attention back to our old friend, Dr. Luke. And so I remind you that uh, Luke has set out in his gospel uh, to write an orderly account right, concerning Jesus uh, so that Theophilus and uh, by extension all of his readers might have certainty uh, concerning the things that they've been taught about him. And so Luke starts his gospel with the announcement of the birth of the prophesied forerunner, the one who would go before Jesus, the one who would set the stage for him, uh, John the Baptist. And he tells about how the angel appeared to Mary to announce that she would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, give birth to none other than the Son of God. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And then in the various reactions to his birth, uh, from the shepherds to the angelic host, to Simeon, to Anna, right? the anticipation begins to build. We see that this is no ordinary child. Uh, This is the long-awaited Messiah. This is God's salvation. Uh, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Uh, And then this Jesus really... Uh, comes on to the scene in chapter 3, right? He is baptized by John the Baptist, consecrating him as the great high priest for his people. And then in the beginning of chapter 4, he uh, is tempted in the wilderness by Satan. And there he shows himself to be the true, obedient son of God, always in line with the will of his father. And then Luke opens up Jesus' public ministry in chapter 4 with that story of him preaching In his hometown synagogue of Nazareth, right, he reads Isaiah 61, uh, this passage about the spirit anointed suffering servant Messiah, and Jesus says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I am that spirit anointed Messiah. And then at the end of chapter 4, Jesus demonstrates that. He uh, backs up that claim, if you will, by healing a demon-possessed man, Uh, by rebuking a fever that had ailed Simon's mother-in-law, by performing exorcisms and healings for all who would come to see him. And the people are left astonished, uh, amazed, both at his teaching and at his miracles. And so when we left off at the end of Luke chapter 4, Luke has already begun to show us very clearly who Jesus is. He is the Spirit-anointed Messiah, he is the Savior of the world. Well, that brings us to our passage for this morning, Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And it's providential that we wrapped up the church series last Sunday by talking about the subject of discipling. Because our passage for this morning, well, Jesus is going to call to himself disciples. Disciples. Uh, He's going to call those who would uh, give their lives to then proclaiming the good news about who he is and what he's come to do. And so let's start by just reading the passage. I want you to look along in your own copies of the scripture, Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Genesaret. Were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, "Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men." And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Our Father in heaven, we pray that as we look into this passage, that you would give us eyes to see the beauty, the holiness the mercy and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord, for each and every soul in this room that whether we've read this story dozens of times or this is our first encounter with this text, that this word would speak to our hearts. We ask for those in this room who do not know you, that today they would see the reality of your holiness and their sinfulness and the sole remedy that is Jesus Christ we ask for those in this room who do know you, we ask that we would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, be changed by your word, that we might leave this room with a greater love for Jesus, a greater desire to obey him and follow him than when we came in. We ask all this in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen. So let's work our way through this narrative. Uh, We're going to use a a five-point outline to guide us, and your five points are all brought to you by the letter C. We're going to look at the crowds, the catch, the crisis, the comfort, and the call. So we've got the crowds, the catch, the crisis, the comfort, and the call. Let's start by looking at point number one, which is the crowds. So by this point in his ministry, Jesus has become quite popular. Uh, His miracles, his teachings, his casting out demons, like that alone will draw a crowd. But it wasn't just his miracles. It was also his teaching. Look at Luke 4.32. They were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. Uh, No one ever spoke like this man. And so on this particular day, Jesus is by the lake of Genesaret, also known as the Sea of Galilee, uh, the largest body of water in that region. Uh, And a crowd has gathered. The crowd is pressing in on him. But it's not because he's casting out demons. It's not because he's healing the sick. It's not because he's doing signs and wonders. No, they're pressing in on him to hear the word of God. As we've been studying this gospel, you may have noticed that Luke almost goes out of his way in these early chapters, to highlight the prominence of Jesus' teaching and his preaching. Uh, perhaps when we read the Gospels, like our hearts are, are most drawn to his miracles. Like that's what we get really excited about. But uh, just look at the repeated emphasis in these early chapters on his teaching. Uh, chapter 4, verse 15, Jesus returns in the Spirit to Galilee. Uh, what does he do? He taught in their synagogues. And then that narrative about Luke going to Nazareth, his hometown. What is it that he does there? He teaches on the Sabbath day. And then Luke tells us about Jesus going to Capernaum. What does he do there? Verse 31, he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And then look at how chapter 4 wraps up. Verse 44, Jesus was preaching... In the synagogues of Judea, which then leads directly into chapter 5, our text for today, the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God. Teaching, preaching, God's word, clearly a priority for Jesus. I think that we as Christians, right, as those who would follow Christ, uh, we would do well to similarly prioritize the preaching, uh, the teaching of God's word. To emphasize it in our churches. To structure our weeks and our schedules around it. To always be preparing our hearts, our minds, whenever we're going to sit under it. To meditate on its truths, even after the sermon or the Bible study is over. To genuinely seek to submit to the truths being preached and taught, humbly allowing it to shape our lives. But now what was Jesus teaching on that particular day by that particular lake? Well, it doesn't say in Luke 5. But if you look back just two verses, right? look at the very end of chapter 4, Luke four forty-three. I think we get a pretty big hint here. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was sent to preach the good news about the kingdom of God. And so is it, is it possible that he was teaching them about, like, head coverings and church discipline? Yes, that's possible. But in all likelihood, he is preaching, he is teaching about the kingdom of God. He is preaching and teaching that he is that spirit-anointed Messiah who has come to seek and to save the lost. He's preaching and teaching that he's come to establish a kingdom that is unlike any here on earth. The kingdom of God is like... Seek first the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. But as Jesus is teaching, most likely about the kingdom of God, a little problem arises, and uh, any preacher will tell you that when you're preaching, any number of problems can potentially arise, but I think this is the best kind of problem. Right? The problem here is just overcrowding. There's just too many people who want to hear the word of God. Luke 5.1, the crowd is pressing in on him. And so you've got Jesus here. He's standing by the lake. He's trying to teach, but now he can't see most of the faces. Uh, They're all around him. There's, There's no space. It's awfully hard to teach like that. And he can't back up any further because he's basically up against the water. And so what does he do? Well, there's two boats out there in the water. fishermen's boats. And so... Uh, Jesus gets into Simon's boat, and he asks him to push out a little bit. Now at this point, Simon has not yet become a full-time disciple of Jesus yet. But he knows who Jesus is. He was first introduced to Jesus uh, by his brother Andrew, actually, all the way back in John chapter 1. We have found the Messiah. Come see him. And he's followed Jesus around a little, He's still doing his fishing thing full-time, but he's also aware, at least on some level, of the fact that this Jesus of Nazareth, like, he's no ordinary man. And so Simon's happy to have Jesus use his boat, and so they push out a little bit, get a little further into the water. This is now picture Jesus here. He's in the boat. There's a little distance now between him and the crowds, and so he can see the crowds and they can all see him in this central location. Uh, The acoustics would have probably worked in his favor, right? As the sound bounces off the water and off the the hills that led down into the lake. And now the crowds can hear him better. So he's kind of have, he's got the perfect spot now. And so he uh, sits down and he teaches the crowds. Where the crowds had come, verse 1, to hear the word of God. And that's exactly what they get. The very words of the incarnate word of God. Point number one, the crowds. Well, that brings us to point number two, uh, the catch. At some point, Jesus finishes his teaching. It doesn't say what happened to the crowds, but presumably they're beginning to disperse. In verse four, he turns his attention now particularly to Simon. Remember, he's in Simon's boat. And he makes, at least from Simon's perspective, What had to be a really bizarre request. Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. So why is this such a bizarre request? Well, uh, there's several reasons. One, Jesus is not a fisherman. Simon is a fisherman. And it's not like like this is his hobby, like this is how he enjoys spending Saturday mornings, right? Out on the lake with the guys. This is his livelihood, It's probably something that his own father did. It's probably something that he's been doing his entire life up to this point since he was a young boy. Simon is a fisherman. Jesus is a carpenter's son. And he's a teacher. Sure, he's a teacher not like any other. But Jesus is not a fisherman. And so why is this non-fisherman teaching me, a lifelong fisherman, how to catch fish? It's like if I showed up at your job tomorrow, started telling you how to do your job. I'm sure you'd be nice about it, but you'd be thinking, like, okay, Pastor, thanks for coming by, but like you need to stay in your lane, right? You need to let me do my job. But second, look ahead to verse 5. All the fishermen, not just Simon, but but also his partners, which we're gonna find out later, includes the sons of Zebedee, James and John, they all toiled all night and they caught nothing. These guys knew this lake like the back of their hand, but they got nothing all night. But now you just show up after you're done teaching and and you think you know where the fish are? A third, this type of fishing with uh, these kinds of nets that are being referred to here in this passage, it was typically only done at night. Uh, In the daytime, apparently, uh, these nets are way too visible for the fish. And so that's why Peter and his friends fish at night. And so you you want us to drop the nets now? Uh, This is for night fishing. This is is not for day fishing. So you've got all these things going against this request by Jesus. And then you add to that the fact that Peter and his friends and his men, they are exhausted. They are discouraged. I mean, they just spent the entire night fishing. And these guys are basically working 100% commission, right? If they catch nothing, they earn nothing. So it's not like when, you know, grandpa takes Johnny out to fish and, oh, tough day on the lake, bud. Didn't catch anything, maybe next time. Like, no, this is a complete failure. So they finally call it quits. They finally clean their nets. They've caught nothing. They finally put everything away. So we'll just try again tomorrow night. They're exhausted, they're discouraged, they're frustrated, and now Jesus is telling them to take everything back out to fish again. It's kind of like when you get home from just an exhausting, draining day of work, and you take a nice shower, and you're about to hop into bed, and you pull the covers over, and then your phone starts buzzing, and the boss wants you to go back into the office. You're like, oh, I just want to go to bed and so we wouldn't blame Simon for not wanting to do this. But look at verse 5, right? Look at Simon's response. Uh, master, that's a term of respect. Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But, and that's the key word in this story. But, but at your word, I will let down the nets. So this is not perfect faith. This is not a complete unquestioning, unwavering allegiance to what Jesus says, right? There's definitely some, like, doubt and reluctance mixed in there. But it is faith nonetheless. Faith like a grain of mustard seed, but faith nonetheless. Enough faith to overcome the doubts that he has, to look beyond all the reasons as to why this is a really bad idea. But at your word, I will let down the nets. I like how the NIV puts it. Because you say so, I will let down the nets. Everything in me, like the lifelong fisherman in me, the exhausted and tired, I just want to go to bed, Peter within me, uh, wants to say no. But because you say so, because you say so, I'm going to do it. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And what happens... Look at the text they enclosed a large number of fish a large number plethos think of our english word plethora like a plethora of fish uh, the word is also translated multitude like this is a multitude of fish and it's such a great multitude that the nets begin to break i mean this is not like one of those you know, cheap plastic bags at key food like you put the first item in and it starts to rip right these are nets Fishing nets that are specifically designed to hold fish. And yet they are breaking. They're bursting at the seams because this is a multitude of fish. And so they start pulling these nets into the boat. Well, one boat's not going to be enough. So they get a second boat. And even then, there are so many fish that the boats begin to sink. Now, some of us might be picturing like a, like a little two-person canoe, right? Like, here's Peter, and there's Jesus, and they start putting some fish into the canoe, and the canoe starts tipping. Like, no, these are, in all likelihood, like big fishing boats, like 20-something feet long. Like You don't do commercial fishing in a canoe. And again, these are fishing boats that are specifically designed to hold fish. And they're sinking. Right? This is a multitude of fish. It's literally boatloads of fish. So how do we explain this? The career fishermen who knew that lake like the back of their hands, they couldn't catch a single thing all night. It's daytime. It's not even when you're supposed to be using nets like this. And it's not like they're out there with Jesus for, you know, a couple of hours. Like, hey, let's try this spot. No, all right, let's try that spot. No, the very first time that he tells them to drop their nets, they literally pull up more fish than they can handle. How do we Explain that, well, friends, this is nothing short of a miracle. This is the God who created that lake, who created the water in that lake, the God who created every single fish in that lake, the God who upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is that God sovereignly bringing the fish to the exact spot where Peter and his men would drop those nets. This is the God who directs every molecule of the universe, sovereignly directing all of those fish into that net. Friends, this is a miracle. And in a way, if you think about it, it's kind of an unnecessary, like, over-the-top miracle, right? Like, I think Jesus could have made his point that he is the omnipotent sovereign by just bringing in, I don't know, like a hundred fish, I think Peter would have gotten the point. Like Jesus didn't need to make the nets literally burst and the boats literally sink. But then again, we're dealing with him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, aren't we? Point number two, the catch. So the fishermen fish all night, catch nothing. They're exhausted. They're ready to go home. Here comes Jesus. He tells them to fish one more time. Peter obeys, perhaps reluctantly, not really believing that Jesus knew what he was doing. But if you say so, and now he's got more fish than he knows what to do with. So, how is Peter then going to react? Well, this is amazing. Jesus, you just made up for a complete wash of a night just like that. This is awesome. Wait a minute! Hold on. I think we got something here. I got the boats. I got the nets. Got the whole like control the fish thing. We can go half seas on this thing. We'll be really rich. Not at all. Uh, the economics, the business, uh, the revenues—that's not on Peter's mind at all. I mean, even the fish. Right, the boatloads of fish, Peter seems to forget about the fish also. Like all he can think about right now is what the fish tell him about Jesus. And it drives him to this crisis. Point number three the crisis. Look at verse 8. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. I'm a sinful man. You say, Well, that comes out of nowhere. And Jesus hasn't said anything about sin or righteousness or God's law or holiness or anything like that. Like if the conversation was, Well, you know, Peter, you've been cherishing idols in your heart? Have you been covetous of Zebedee's fishing business? Have you been loving your wife well this week? And Jesus is peppering him with questions like that. In that case, we might expect Peter to say, Oh, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. But here the only thing Jesus says is put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. What's that got to do with sin? Nothing. Well, nothing directly. Verse 8, when Simon Peter saw it, when he saw the miraculous haul of fish, well, he quickly did some mental math. He quickly realized who it was that was standing before him oh, this is no mere teacher, this is no mere rabbi, this is God incarnate. And notice how the title with which he addresses Jesus, it goes from master in verse 5 to now Lord in verse 8. Lord, kurios, the word used in the Greek Old Testament for the name of God, Uh, Kurios, a, a word that has been used 33 times so far in this Gospel of Luke, and each of those 33 times refers not to a human being, but to deity. Kurios, Lord. You know, the one the angels told us about on that first Christmas. Unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ, the Lord. That's who's standing before him. None other than God himself, right? God incarnate, God in the flesh, the God of the universe, the God who rules the seas, the God who made the fish, the God who could, by the word of his power, draw every single bass and trout and sunfish in that lake right into Peter's net. That's who's standing before him and being in the presence of God, realizing that he's in the presence of God. God. Well, that makes Peter see his own sinfulness in a way that he had never seen it before. My friend, friends, so often, whether it's Peter or me or you, so often we think of righteousness, sin, we think of those things primarily in relation to one another, right? primarily in relation to those around us. Like the Pharisee in Luke 18, like, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I'm more righteous than he is. I'm not as bad of a sinner as she is. And we take comfort in that. Because by definition, at least half of us then are above average. But that's not the standard that we're ultimately measured against. That's not the standard that establishes us as being righteous or unrighteous. No, the standard is that of a holy God. And that's the standard that we all fall woefully short of. That's what Peter realizes here. Like he's face to face with the one who is perfectly righteous, who is perfectly holy, and that crushes him. I am a sinful man. You are a holy God and I am a sinful man. We see this reaction, this kind of reaction to God's holiness throughout the Bible. The book of Job. Right At the end of the book, God addresses Job directly out of the whirlwind. And what is Job's reaction? I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. An encounter with the holy brings Job to a realization of his own sinfulness. And he despises himself. Or Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah has this vision of the throne room of God. He sees Jesus on his throne, the train of his robe, filling the temple. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And what is Isaiah's reaction? Woe is me, for I am lost. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. An encounter with the holy brings Isaiah to the realization of his own sinfulness and so he pronounces woe upon himself. Holy, holy, holy is God and sinful, sinful, sinful am I. That's exactly what happens here with Peter. When sinful man has an encounter with a holy God, it's like nothing else matters. My livelihood Uh, My fishing business, my nets, and my boats like none of that matters. All you can see is a holy God, how you've sinned against this holy God, and how that just drives you to your knees in sheer terror, right? This fear of judgment, knowing that a holy God could and should destroy you for your sin. And so Peter cries out, Depart from me. I can't be in your presence. It's not just that Peter feels unworthy. It's that Peter knows that he is completely disqualified. Depart from me. I'm, I'm a wretched worm and I cannot be in the presence of a holy God. Friends, I wonder if you've ever had an experience like that. A moment where you realize, like really realize just what it means that God is a holy God. And that you, in contrast, are a sinful wretch. And that just brings you to your knees, whether literally or figuratively. And you just feel completely naked and exposed before him. And just this this sheer terror because of the judgment that your sin deserves. And you realize that you've earned God's wrath. You realize that you deserve to go to hell. You realize that God will be totally just and fair to punish you for eternity, and there's nothing you can do but just cry out from the bottom of your heart for God to have mercy on you. Point number three: the crisis. Peter realizes who it is who's standing before him. He realizes who he is in contrast. And he just falls on his face. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Friends, the good news in this story is that Jesus doesn't leave Peter in this state of crisis. Instead, he brings him comfort. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And so point number four is the comfort. And the comfort, not just for this particular story, but of this entire book and really the entire Bible, is that this realization by Peter of his own sinfulness, it doesn't disqualify him from being with Jesus because it's actually for people like him that Jesus came. Because the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so Peter actually got this backwards. His realization of his own sinfulness, that doesn't mean that Jesus must depart. No, that's actually exactly why Jesus came. Verse 10, Jesus, well, the gracious Savior, the, the gentle and lowly and heart of bruised reed, he, he will not break a, a, a smoldering wick, he will not quench. Now look at his response to comfort. Simon in his distress, do not be afraid. Or how the old King James would put it fear not. Fear not. When one has an encounter with the holiness of God, when man sees his wretchedness and sinfulness in light of God's holiness, in light of God's perfect standard, when he realizes that a holy God should crush him for his sin, like fear is the natural and appropriate response, right? A fear that begs God to depart. But you see, it's sinners like that who come to the end of themselves and who cry out for God's mercy It's sinners like that that Jesus came to save. It's sinners who truly mourn over their sinfulness, who are in turn blessed. Indeed, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Because it's sinners like that for whom Jesus would go to the cross, bearing the wrath of God in their place, satisfying God's holy wrath against their sins so that they wouldn't have to. As the same Peter would later write, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And so the very one who stands before Peter, bringing Peter's sinfulness to light, exposing Peter's sin, well, he's the one who would later bear all of those sins on Calvary in Peter's place, the righteous for the unrighteous. And so even as Peter sees God's holiness and realizes his own sinfulness, Jesus can assure him, fear not. And similarly, for those of us, even as God gives us eyes to see his holiness and realize our own wretchedness and sinfulness, and for those of us who in response cry out for mercy and look to Christ and Christ alone for our salvation, Jesus can assure us, fear not. Fear not, because Christ has died for sin. Fear not, because Christ has risen again. Fear not, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, friends, if you see nothing else from this story, if you take nothing else away from this morning, I hope you can see just what great of a Savior we have. A marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Peter, you realize that you're a sinner? Well, take comfort, Jesus says, because I'm a friend of sinners. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Point number four, the comfort. The story's not quite over yet. A little bit more, because it's not just that Jesus comforts Simon, do not fear, with the wonderful, marvelous truth that his sins would be forgiven. Now he goes even further than that. He lavishes, from his fullness, grace upon grace, right? He calls Peter into lifelong service for him. So point number five, we have the call. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land... They left everything and followed him. So Jesus takes this fisher of fish and he makes him into a fisher of men. Look again at what Jesus says here. It's not, hey, Peter, I think you'd make a great evangelist. Would you please consider a career change? Come work for me. I've got sign-up sheets in the back if you're interested. Now this is a sovereign declaration of what he is going to do. You will be catching men. That's kind of a bold claim. He will be catching men? But then we remember the promise that Jesus would make to all of his disciples. I'm with you always, to the end of the age. And so was Jesus right? Right? Would Peter, in fact, catch men? It's a terrible question. Of course Jesus was right. Peter would catch men. Boatloads of men. Multitudes of men. You all know the story from Acts chapter 2. Where this ex-fisherman preaches to a large crowd at Pentecost. And what happens? They were cut to the heart. And they were added that day About 3,000 souls. 3,000. Like, I think we can all agree that is a net-bursting, boat-sinking catch of souls. An exceedingly, abundantly, above-all-that-we-can-ask-or-think kind of haul, if there ever was one. So just like in Luke 5, where Jesus causes Peter to catch a multitude of fish, Well, the beginning chapters of Acts very clearly lay it out for us how Jesus causes Peter and the other apostles to catch a multitude of men and women for the kingdom of God. Point number five, the call. Jesus takes Peter, even in his humiliation, Jesus takes Peter and he sets him apart to do great things. So that's Luke chapter five, verses one through 11. The crowds, the catch, the crisis, the comfort, and the call. Let me leave you with two uh, points of application. There's two ways in which uh, this story, as Luke presents it to us here, uh, two ways in which it calls us to respond. Application point number one is simply a call to obedience. I think this story calls us to obedience. Let's think again about the key moment in the story, the, the, the turning point when Jesus commands Peter to let down that net. And again, like you can just imagine the million things that are going through Peter's mind. I'm the fisherman here. He's just the rabbi. We, we've tried this all night and we've caught nothing. These are nighttime nets. I'm tired. I just, I just want to go home and go to bed. But at your word, I will let down the nets. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. And that obedience, as difficult as it might have been, as strongly as every instinct in Peter might have gone against it, that obedience marks the turning point in our story. But because you say so, Broadly speaking, I think every Christian in this room, you can kind of sort the obedience, the calls to obedience in your life uh, into two broad categories. And this differs for each one of us because we struggle in different ways and uh, we each lack trust in God in different ways. But uh, broadly speaking, right, there are the easy obediences and there are the hard obediences. Uh, these easy obediences, these would be the, the commands and the, the biblical principles that uh, we really don't mind following. Like, for whatever reason, they just they, they are just easier to us. But then there's these hard obediences where every inclination of our hearts goes against wanting to submit to God's word. Now for Peter, right? It's the let down your nets for a catch kind of obedience. And so we'll see a command in the scriptures. We'll say, but but... But I want uh, to, but here's what I think is best. But I know this stuff pretty well. And I'm pretty sure, and everything in us is inclined to disobey. And we're tempted to rationalize it as, I know better. Yet yeah, Jesus, I hear you, but, but I, I, I'm the fisherman. I know better. I was out here all night. I know better. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. Brothers and sisters, it's in those areas of our lives that God's word calls us to value, but because you say so, what God plainly tells us in his word over every other inkling and instinct and inclination in us. Right? That's what it really means to submit to God's word. Oh, but I'm so tired and it's been such a long day and I, I, I don't want to lead Family worship. But because you say so. I, I want to date this unbeliever. I know what the word says, but, but she makes me happy and she makes me feel fulfilled. But because you say so, I don't want to forgive. Oh, how I'd love to just sulk in and, and self pity and bitterness but because you say so. I don't want to put in the effort to love my spouse. I know how it's going to turn out anyway. It's been like this for years and years. But because you say so, this story calls us to an obedience that maybe some of us aren't really comfortable with. Where we truly put God's word above everything else, above every inclination of our hearts. Where because you say so really doesn't matter more to us than anything else. Application point number one is a call to obedience. Specifically, it's a call to difficult obedience. Application point number two is to see Christ as Worthy. See Christ as worthy, right? Recall how the story ends. Peter, James, John with him. They leave everything. They leave their fish. They leave their business. They leave their families. They leave everything to follow Jesus, to become fishers of men, to become disciples, to become apostles, to become the very foundation upon which the church will be built. From now on, you will be catching men. And so from then on, right, their lives were never the same. I realize that not everyone is called to full-time ministry. Now, if the Lord has used this passage to put that on your heart, to serve him with your life in that way, whether that's going into the ministry or maybe doing overseas missions or something like that, well, praise God, right? That's wonderful. But for most of you, just because you don't feel called into full-time ministry, well, you're not quite off the hook because Jesus calls all of his disciples to a complete devotion to him. And maybe this is where a lot of us get it backwards. Because there's this temptation to think, well, here's my life. right? Here's my job. And here's my family. And here's my friends. And here's my home. Now, how does... Jesus fit into all that. How can following Jesus make those things better for me? Well, in that case, those things are what you value most, and Jesus is only valuable to you to the extent that He makes those things which we truly value even better. How can Jesus make my family life better? How can Jesus make my work life better? This story shows us that that kind of thinking is entirely backwards. Because it's Jesus who is ultimately worthy. It's Jesus who is the pearl of great price. It's Jesus who is so valuable that Peter and his friends give up everything to follow him. See, we have left everything and followed you. This story is a call to see Christ as worthy. For each of us who professes his name to see him as preeminent in our lives. To value him as most valuable, as worthy above all else, and then see how everything else in our lives, our job, our family, our friends, our home, all of that stuff fits in around Jesus. So that Jesus stops becoming the the genie that serves all of these other things— And instead, we rightly see all of these other things as existing in our lives to serve Jesus. Because it's only when we see our work as serving Jesus instead of Jesus as serving our work that we could do something as radical as Peter does here, right? Leave his job, leave his nets, leave his fish, and serve Jesus full time. And it's only when we see our lives as serving Jesus, instead of Jesus serving our lives, that we could do something as radical as Peter and ultimately give our life for the sake of Christ. And again, I'm not saying that God has called you to some specific sacrifice for him. I I don't know that. Maybe he has, maybe he hasn't. Uh, The Holy Spirit will reveal that to you one way or the other. But what I am saying is that unless we see Christ as worthy, unless we see him as the hidden treasure in the field worth selling everything for, we'll never be willing or able to make that sacrifice when God does call us to it. Application point number two, see Christ as worthy. Father, we thank you for this glorious story in which we see the holiness, the majesty of your Son, our sinfulness in contrast, and yet your grace and mercy extended to sinners, for indeed you have come to seek and save the lost. Father, we pray that your people would rejoice in that grace, Lord, that we would pursue obedience from the heart, Indeed, your commandments are not burdensome, but are a joy. Father, help us to see that. And Father, help us to see Christ as being the one who is worthy above all, the pearl of great price, the one whom, for whom we should be willing to give up everything. Father, we love you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.